welcome to Doing the Work, the frontline stories of social change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. In this episode, I talk with Amanda Wallace, who is the founder and executive director of Operation Stop CPS based in Durham, North Carolina. We talk about how the family policing system surveils and regulates families, especially black families, under the guise of child protection. Amanda shares how she worked in child protective services for 10 years with the original good intentions of helping, but realized the harm that was being done to children and families. As she began to advocate for change within that system, specifically providing parents with information about their rights and how the system works, she faced retaliation and lost her job. Amanda discusses the work of Operation Stop CPS, how they intervene to assist families being affected by the system, families who have had their children taken from them, family separation, and families facing this state-sanctioned kidnapping. Amanda explains how this system is rooted in anti-black racism, both historically and present day. She shares the hope of building a movement to end family policing while providing the needed education, advocacy, and support for families right now. I hope this conversation inspires you to action. Before we get into the interview, I want to let you all know about our episode sponsor, the University of Houston Graduate College of Social Work. First off, I want to thank them for sponsoring the podcast. UH has a phenomenal social work program that offers face-to-face master's and doctorate degrees, as well as an online and hybrid MSW. They offer one of the country's only political social work programs and an abolitionist-focused learning opportunity. Located in the heart of Houston, the program is guided by their bold vision to achieve racial, social, economic, and political justice local to global. In the classroom and through research, they are committed to challenging systems and reimagining ways to achieve justice and liberation. Go to www.uh.edu forward slash social work to learn more. And now, the interview. Thank you so much for coming on, doing the work, Amanda. Um, we've done some past episodes about the family policing system, otherwise known as child welfare, how it gets hidden and covered up and called child welfare. And when I saw the work you were doing on, in, you know, I learned about your work on Instagram. I really wanted to make sure to get you on here. So I'm really excited that we connected and that you're on here. And so just to start off, please tell us about Operation Stop CPS. Like, what do you all do? And how did you get started as an organization? Yeah, well, first, I want to thank you, you know, for holding space to allow me to talk about, you know, the work. Um, but again, the name, the title, Operation Stop CPS, that's what we do, right? Our mission is to abolish the child protection system, which is what a lot of people re- reference it as. But what we understand it to be the family regulation system, the family policing system. And so our mission is to expose the reality of the system and then to call people to action to actually be the solution, right? And so we do that by educating families um, on their rights, educating families on what they 
they should do during the process to be able to ensure that their voice is heard. Also educating communities um, on what they need to do to be the solution to the problem. Um, and that looks like protesting, court watching, uh, sending emails, making phone calls, right? And so again, our main mission is to abolish the family regulation system. And we do that in a lot of ways because it looks, it looks different um, for, for a lot of families. Yeah, I think one of the things that really struck me about like looking at your organization's website is all the different ways you intervene. So maybe we can kind of talk about that now and then we'll get into some other stuff a little later because it, it's like there's really just so many ways. You know, could you go a little uh, more in depth about and describe all the different ways that um, Operation Stop CPS intervenes in order to protect families and children and keep them together? Yeah, I mean, we, we do that by understanding that we have to humanize the family, right? So the system is able to paint this narrative that families are in need of like assistance from the state and that they're there to protect families. But like what we do is we are able to show this family in the in their truest sense, right? In the love, the the, the a mother's pain of not being with their child, right, for years, being able to see that. We do that by um by allowing parents to just speak their own narrative right? To tell their story, right? We're storytellers, right? We tell we tell the story of the family and then we use social media, right? And the news to be able to magnify that voice so that this family is not, um, is not fighting alone. And then also then taking that in the court of public opinion, right? Because that's something that's not always utilized by families is the court of public opinion. And so then bringing it to the, to the actual court, room and and offering court support right being able to to sit there with the family it's so important when a mother that has been fighting for years with nobody sitting there in support then has two three four five people sitting out there you know showing the judge showing the department that there is community right and and that is like the most powerful i believe thing when I when we think about Operation Stop CPS is the activation of community. Right? Like when we say, well, how do you how do you reimagine or how do you abolish the system? You abolish the system by igniting a community around people and and, and letting a community know their responsibility to ensure mm-hmm. that children are safe, right? So that is operation, it's a mindset shift. Operation Stop CPS is a mindset shift and a mindset shift that started from a social worker that used to work in the system, right? I worked for, as a CPS investigator for over 10 years in the state of North Carolina. I went, I did, went to college. I got my bachelor's of social work and went immediately into child welfare as an investigator, right? And so for those 10 years, I thought I was a superhero. I thought that I was doing the work. I thought that Mm -hmm. I was, you know, I thought that I was protecting families and, 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 you know, get, you know, giving services to families. But in reality, like, that's not what was happening. That's not what was happening. I was simply doing a job. I was doing a job um, from a system that was, was set up and designed to make me think that I was doing the work. Right. And so like, Operation Stop CPS really challenges that belief of people that are in the system. 
You know, how can you say that you are doing, if you're inside of the system, how can you say that you are doing the work when we, when we put families in front of you that are hurting, that simply, that you're not actually helping, that you're traumatizing, right? And it's, it's really putting up the mirrors because for me, I had to take off the blinders in order to, to truly see what needed to happen and to walk in my purpose, And that looked like when I was in the system, I took a child into custody that I knew was safe, right? So I filed the, as a social worker, I filed the petition. I wrote the petition. I walked the petition to the judge. The judge didn't read it. He just signed it and gave me custody, the the state custody of this child. And in that moment, I was faced with a moral dilemma, Right. I was faced with a moral dilemma because guess what? I had did my job. Mm-hmm. Literally, I had did my job. I did what I was told to do. But what that did was ruin a family's life. Right. And so those are the realities that we have to talk about. Those are the realities We have to create safe spaces for people to be able to confront those realities and then say, well, what are we willing to do differently? There is no need for the family regulation system. There's no need for the family policing system. Like if we can just be really clear about that and really simple about that when we when we are in the community, then we would be able to move forward a lot quicker in this fight. Yeah, that's an incredible story. And I actually want to hear a little bit more about this turning point for you because so you've got 10 years, right, that you were uh, in CPS and then you have this this turning point. And, and one thing that I was thinking about when you were talking about that is the training that, you know, you had and a lot of us have as social workers where like we're taught like this is actually the right way to do things, right? To protect Mm -hmm. children. So we're already taught to look at parents who are struggling as like, in some ways, like problematic, right? And dangerous. Mm -hmm. Um, So how did that shift for you? Like, was it building up over time? And then it really, that was like the turning point or like, how did you undo all of that training and all of those years of like being in the system? Because I think it does something... I mean, at least for me, like, I think there's like an undoing that needs to happen mentally, too. It it does. And I think I'm still undoing what I've learned from the system. Like every mm-hmm. day it has helped from the political education that I've, um, you know, gotten since being out of the system. You know, shout out to the African National Women's Organization, which I'm a part of when it comes to political, um, you know, political education. Um but when it comes to like the turning point, yes, it was building. It, it, it was building up throughout like my career. I felt like I was able to use my voice to challenge like certain things. Um, but policies, I saw them getting even more like oppressive, like the things that weren't written in policy that kind of gave some latitude about like we can talk about it and use some critical thinking skills. Those things like we couldn't do it anymore. Like it was just, this is what you have to do. You have to do it this way. And there's no 
no exceptions. And so what that then does to a person that is used, like, is, is we, we can have a conversation. I like, I don't operate in black and white. Like I'm not a robot or an AI that this system is trying to create. Right. And so like when I'm out speaking to a family and I'm talking to them and there is like a uh, poverty <laughs> that is present or like just challenges or a mother that has to choose between, um, you know, going to work or supervising her child, right? Those things, when you're faced with those things and you have to have real conversations, but a system that doesn't accept those those realities, even though those are the realities that it, it created for those people. And mm-hmm. so like, again, like as a, as a human though, a person going through my own personal, I believe, awakening at the same time, like coming to like, well, what am I doing? Like, you know, if I like, what is, what am I truly like, what has this education? I'm a social worker. What does that even mean? Right? Like asking myself those questions, what am I doing here? And then like seeing the fact that I'm not truly helping, like, you know, I'm not helping. Someone um, like said that social work is just, a profession to help people feel good about their social condition that's been imposed on them. Right. And like, when I heard that, I was like, that's it. Right. Like, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I was going out to people's homes and like helping them for a moment. They're talking to me, but then at the same time, I'm just using that information for their, for the case. I'm not truly giving them any help, you know, and those types of things. And so again, it was, I think it was just stacked on on stacked on stack on things that were happening that just caused me to to have this this moral like just again dilemma and um and my voice became just a threat to this system i think i became closer to the root of the problem i started to go on to like state design teams in north carolina they were redesigning child welfare and i'm like okay this might be an avenue to try to get my voice heard but once i got even closer i think to the root or to the power source i just saw how chaotic and how like nothing they actually want to do actually changes it and just how far removed people were from the actual people, right? Like no one cared about impacted parents on these meetings. Nobody cared about what was happening to families. It was just writing up little pretty, you know, forms and, you know, making people feel like think something was changing. And I just, like, I was just done with that. Like, quite frankly, I was done with that shit, right? I was, I was over it. I was like, no, enough is enough. And like, when, when I went out on leave, at Wake County, which is where I, I was formerly employed. When I went out on leave, I had no idea oper- what Operation Stop CPS was. It wasn't a name. It wasn't an idea or anything, right? I was just done. And I knew a solution had to, like something had to happen. And I got a big whiteboard <laughs> and put it up on my wall and just just started just Things just start coming out of my head, like what, like what could be a solution, and like what, what needs to happen. And Operation Stop CPS was birthed from this need for change, right? And and not just like change, but revolutionary change, change that would 
put me as a social worker out of business, right? Like, how do I stop myself? How do I stop myself from coming into somebody's home? That's the information that, you know, families need to have. And so in launching Operation Stop CPS, the Responding Power Guide was also launched, which is a how-to guide for families um, who get that knock on the door from a CPS investigator. And also before you get that knock, you should have this information. And, you know, again, it was like a, okay, this is the information that people need to know. Like, stop opening your door. Stop letting CPS come inside. Like, you know, again, just giving people this information so that they started to, like, draw the line. Like, these people are the enemy. Let's stop Mm -hmm. first. That's the first thing. Again, it's the mindset. Like, our goal is to shift mindsets. And if we keep seeing the state as the people with the resources, we'll never be able to close our door to them. We have to see the state as the enemy, as our captors, as our colonizers. Like, we have to see them for who they are. It's like, it's so interesting because, you know, really, in a lot of ways, only someone who had like that experience you had could create, I mean, not saying other people couldn't that never worked in CPS, obviously, but like, you know, all the ins and outs, you know, all the tricks that get used, right? So like, you creating a guide for parents and having this really like transformative uh, experience to then like create this organization, it's like gotta be, it's like you're giving out like the inside info, right? Right. And and that's why I got fired. I mean, as soon as operations, <laughs> like the day after Operation Stop CPS was launched in 2021 um, and the Responding Power Guide uh, was launched, we got locked out of computers and they said bye bye. Um, and one of the, the, the things was they said, you cannot give out information to the public. Right. Like this is detrimental to the county for you to give people their rights. And it's like, um, excuse me, like I, I thought that's what we were supposed to do. Right. Like that was my argument. Like nothing that I get, nothing that's in the guide is not public. It's no proprietary information. It is simply taking the information that people should know and putting it in a guide, a handy guide right here, because words are powerful. Like we have two pages full of definitions just for people to understand the lingo of the system, right? Because just knowing that will help you understand and have thoughtful conversations with people, right? Like what to ask when the social worker picks up the phone, those types of things. They don't know how to deal with people asking them questions on the other end. And so like they know that that's dangerous for the county, for families to be empowered with knowledge, it is, but it's what needs to happen. And so like, that's just, that's, I mean, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's what needs to happen. Families have to have power um, and we have to take it back. We can't act for it. So you actually started this while you were still employed by the county and then, right? Like you're thinking, oh, like I can keep doing this or you were trying to figure out maybe what you were going to do, right? With like work and stuff, but you were like, I know I need to do this to help these families. And then they fired you. Right. So I was on leave due to the the mental anguish of this system. Right. And so I think as when I was no longer like doing that work, my mind became so powerful. 
Okay. <laughs> my mind became so powerful and so clear. And during that time, not being physically attached to the, the system or working or doing that work, that's when this idea of Operation Stop CPS was launched, right? In the Responding Power Guide. And then, yes, as soon as it was uh, launched to the public and the my county found out about it, I was fired. Wow. Because they said that it was, incom- it was incompatible with public service. That says a lot. That says a lot right there. Because why are, I mean, this is a bigger conversation, but like, why are these, why are families the enemy and why aren't people able to know what their rights are? And we know why, because then the exploitation can continue, right? Exactly. And it's just that, like, that simple. It's as simple as you just said it, right? Like, we know why. We know why this is dangerous. We know why they don't want people to have this knowledge because if you just simply shift your mindset and responded differently, you responded in power to the system, they would lose their power. Like it's it's simply a mindset. They created this system and then they gave themselves power. They created laws to protect themselves and then they gave themselves the money to fund their operation. Like it's just that simple, right? Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. when, when enough people stop to be, stop believing in the lie, we can actually get to some truth and then just we need to repeal those laws, right? We need to reroute those funds. Like we know what needs to happen. We just have to build enough power to be able to demand those things. Yeah. I think like one of the biggest things with this whole, uh, you know, family policing system, which just the fact that it gets called child welfare, child protection services, like these misconceptions, right? So it starts with like the public perception and then really for the people working in the systems, it starts with like the educational, like a lot of these social work programs, which, you know, many of us over the years have like done a lot of work around like, um, you know, white supremacy in social work and like the harm that's done and changes that need to happen within social work. But kind of, so kind of going off of that, like what are some of the misconceptions that people have about this system? You know, that for like, just for example, whenever abolishing child welfare comes up, right? The first thing people always are going to say is like, but what about abuse? Like, what about abuse? Like, we've got to save these kids, right? And Mm -hmm. people who like know about it, who've like worked in the system or like have studied it or know that like the majority of the cases aren't like these like severe physical abuse cases, right? Like the majority are neglect cases, which has very, a very wide definition almost doesn't have a definition in some states which often gets tied back to poverty so like maybe we can just kind of talk about that in terms of like what did you see in your 10 years and like the misconceptions that people have about this system yeah um, when when people say that in regards to what about the the children that are being abused if we abolish the system what happens to them and i you know always tell them so in in my 10-year career i can count on one hand how many bad cases of abuse that i saw right like that were like oh that's that's something you know something's happening here let's figure something out right and so so to think that i was paid i came to work every day for 10 years and I only saw or responded to five cases, that one should just challenge your thought of this 
this system, this whole system being needed. And then the, the, the misconception that this system has resources to, to solve the problems that they're getting called for. And so like if a family got called because of improper supervision, a parent's at work, we didn't have the daycare or childcare to provide to this family to, to solve the problem. So it was like, well, what are you calling for? Right. Or if a family didn't have food, we didn't have food resources to give to the family. Um, it was just looked at as a problem. Right. And so like, again, like I think the biggest mis- misconception is that like this system protects families or that they're doing they're doing some type of like good. Um, and then I think also like when we see these like cases that are like really bad, right, that come out um, on the news, you know, media one, I think that we need to always caution the the state's propaganda right like of like this is what you see that's this is what helps people re- feel good about this system um and then also when the system fails and then it's it's exposed people tend to look at it as if oh they just messed up this time or like this is maybe um a one off situation mm-hmm. when and in reality, the system is just it's just got exposed. But this is this is actually the reality. This is what's happening every single day. A child, children being murdered, raped, being prostituted by their caseworkers, you know, families not being reunited and children remaining in foster care. That's 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 like every day. You know what I mean? Look at their own statistics. Look at their own numbers. I've been in the system and through several state reviews, federal state reviews. And we've always failed. I mean, child welfare fails every year. The feds come and they review. And and guess what? They go on a corrective action plan and nothing changes. I was sat on a a state review, I mean, a federal review um, team before I left. I didn't even know if the children were alive based on the documentation. And they still gave us food. And we had a good time at the meeting as we reviewed the cases. But, you know, that's what that's what the review looks like. And so, again, I think the biggest misconception is that this system is actually doing something other than kidnapping black and brown children and um, dismantling families like that's that's the the mission of this system. Um, And if we believe that it's doing anything other than that then we have been bamboozled. Um, Yeah, we we, we're believing we're believing the lie. Yeah, it's absolutely like just hard to like wrap my head around when I have learned more about it. And I think about the money that goes to like a foster family, for example. But like if that money went to the family, you know, before to like actually support them to address whatever issues that led to um, the original call, you know, um, where they get caught up in the system it just doesn't it like it doesn't make any sense like when you think about it just from like even like a financial perspective let alone like the trauma that it does to like these kids you know to be removed from their parents yeah it, but again it made a i think it made a lot of sense to the founders of the the United States right and right, also right. Founders of you know the system, right? They want to cause harm because you break the child, you break the family, you break the revolution, right? And so, and then also financially, it helps 
It help, helps white supremacy. It helps you give it to you want to be able to take this child away and you pay someone else to to, you know, to pretty much to carry out genocide and remove all the culture from this child. Right. They're paying to, to continue this process of imprisonment and enslavement, you know, and so for it should not make sense to us and you know it shouldn't make sense to us and when it when it when you start to challenge what you see hopefully we challenge what we see enough to challenge the system right like why is this this is not this shouldn't be happening like this should not be happening and like we cannot uh, give it any justification like we can't give it any justification. We can't give it any room to wiggle out of like the reality that it is. It is harming, it is harming families and it needs to be abolished. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, I had, um, Jaleel Muntakim on here a while back and there was like a UN tribunal about the United States, about like genocidal conditions and charging the U S with genocide. And that was actually one of the points that was made during that is, the harm that's been done, you know, to black people um, by the U.S. government because of like just what you said, you know, stealing child these children, um, putting them because like, that was another thing, right? Is like the National Association of Black Social Workers way back was like, if you are going to have any removals, the children need to stay first with like family members, like extended family, but then definitely with like other black families. And, you know, that of course doesn't happen. Yeah. And because the system is designed to make sure that it doesn't happen. Like, so we know that the system impacts black families more and generationally. And so they might say that this is what needs to happen. But if the policy says that if you have CPS history, you can't be a caretaker, then that could eliminate you as a possible placement. Or if you had, if we, because we know that black bodies are surveilled by even police more, right? And you have a criminal record that then eliminates you from being placement for a child. Like, again, the system is set up to eliminate people just because of the policies that it creates to over police families. Um, and so, like, again, like, uh, this is just, it's, it's just how it, it was, it was set up. Yeah, totally. And like, it, you're right, like, it's all connected, and it can't be separated, right? Like, so the idea of like, racial capitalism, right, that first puts, you know, especially black people to be in, like, there's a reason there's this, you know, huge racial wealth gap. And there's a reason there's disproportionate levels of poverty that then and then the surveillance on top of that, and like, all these situations that are going to make um, the system be more likely to be involved and then to have a removal, right? Mm -hmm. um, for black children, black families. There, you, yeah. It's all, it's like the same system that's causing poverty is not going to be the same system that can like eliminate that either. Right. And, and to that point, in regards to causing poverty, the same system and social structure that kidnapped, enslaved, beat, tortured, killed, and sold black bodies is now the system responsible for protecting black children. Like, it's just the mind, like, it's like, how, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, 
how, right? Like in, in like a modern day, um, you know, example of like uh, in their what they call like sex offenders, right? A sex offender getting out of jail and then running, you know, the program to protect children, right? And so like, this is the same thing. You have these enslavers, these captors that have now given themselves the power to erase what they have done to people and then create a system to make people think that they are helping people. No, right? When, when are we going to say we don't we don't want your help? We don't need your help because we know what your help has what help has gotten. From the time they came over to Africa to get us with the help help has never like they they've never helped uh, Africans at all, black people at all. Yeah. Yeah. So I have this whole like idea about some stuff with social work and I want to get your thoughts on this because it, it connects to everything we're talking about. So social work programs, right? Like for the majority, we could probably agree that they're like very white centered, right? Like very like white, like middle class, upper middle class in terms of like values, theories, um, and curriculum and the way, the way they teach. Right. But then more and more, um, and over the years and, and more and more like black students who then go into these programs, right? And to pass the classes and everything, they have to like learn this way, right? They have to learn for the most part, I and many others would like call it like white social work because <laughs> there is, there are different types of social work, right? But like to pass the classes, to pass like licensing exams, you have to learn this certain way. But then they'll, but then, and like plenty of white social workers are doing this too. So I'm not trying to make it sound like this is like a black social worker issue and not because white social workers are doing it. But I think the dynamic that's different is when a black social worker is who like is even connected to their community, but then works for child welfare. It's like they've kind of got an in with the community that maybe like the white social worker would be viewed with more like trepidation and like hesitation and like from the community, but uh, like the black social workers come in, but with this having kind of been indoctrinated in these programs of like these white ways of doing things. And I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that. Cause it's something I think about quite often actually. <laughs> yeah. I mean, definitely. I was the social worker that they would send in um, when they had like a, a a family that was, you know, not so receptive, right? Because I could sit down and smile and we could have a conversation. And, you know, it's again, it's how the system was designed. If you see someone that looks like you, you are not going to be as defensive, right? You might listen to that person more. And because of like the, like the, also the racial divide, right? If you see this white social work worker coming in, you're more likely to see the system for who it, what it truly is. But if yeah. you have this, this person that looks like somebody in your community, then you think that they might be there to help you. 
Um, and so again, it's just, it's just how it's designed. And so, like you said, like having to go through like this education or this indoctrination into the system down to having to label people and their diagnosis and who they are, right? Oh, they got some signs of ADHD or they have some signs of bipolar disorder. Like everybody has all these signs that the system has, you know, taught us to like look at people, not for like just humans that are having an experience, but but what is it? Where can we fit them into the DSM? Where can we fit them into here and to here? Um, and so, again, yeah, I think that the system is smart. It's extremely smart and it is, it is operating exactly how it's designed. And you want to ensure that the, the, your target doesn't see like what you're truly doing. Right. And so like that, it is, they're set up to be able to be the friendly social workers that look like, look, look just like community policing. Right. Like they say that the cops need to look like the, the community. And it's like so that you can trust the cops. Like, no, we don't want to trust the cops, nor do we want to trust the social workers. We want to trust the community. And that means you can't have any attachment to the system at all. And we got to teach ourselves that. Yeah. And, you know, like I hope any uh, social work educators who are listening, like white social work educators or white social workers on, you know, hear that, like, I'm like, I, I'm not trying to, I, I think like white social workers and white faculty need to address this issue and change the curriculum, change the practices, like stop doing this, you know, and, um, and stop creating these programs that are putting out you know, new social workers that are gonna are going and doing harm, like in in communities. Yeah, like the first thing is like I thought I could save the world. Like that's red flag, okay? Red flag is if you come out of school and you believe you can save the world or save anyone, save yourself. That's what I want. Like that is what people need to be able to understand. If you save yourself, then you will just show up in the world and just be who you need to be for whoever you come in contact with. Right. And so like, if you go into a home and you are trying to fix or assess or diagnose someone, then you've probably missed the reason why you have come in contact with this person. Right. And so like, we just need to like, instead of like learning a profession of social work, we just need to learn how to be better humans, having better human experiences, living self-determined lives and not, you know, being problems in other people's lives. Like, you know what I mean? And, and I think that it's hard because truly challenging these professions and these, in, like the indoctrination of people, it really this the system crumbles right like the the social work program might not be so popular or you know these programs might not be so popular or the funding might decrease but it should be going somewhere else anyway right like right, that's right. like it has to, like those funds should be going somewhere else anyway you should be doing something else anyway um like in yeah so i think if we but the problem is this system employs corporate loyalty right like the you have like it's a it's a career path it's a way to feed your family you know like i had to like give up my ability to save securely right feed my family when I challenge this system and they have attacked me at every, at every turn since I've started. Right. And so 
But again, that corporate loyalty, those vacations, those that that those the the um the healthcare plan, all of those things creates this sense of I'm just going to do what I need to do and I'm just going to get my job done. But what I'll say is that this system has created this mindset of money. This system has created the attachment of money and power. And when we as people take that 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 back, um, then we will see we don't need like what this system is offering. That's the only. That's really the only way I think that we're gonna be able to abolish this system is we have to challenge this mindset of power. What is true power in 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 our society? Because they've defined it for us, but we can redefine it, and that looks like in our schools, right? In our in our students, like what like what's really um, let's really think here about what we are gonna do moving forward. Yeah, no, like you hit on so many good points. I mean, a lot of the people working in these positions. I mean, they're living in the same larger structures, the larger system, and the, and like because of these jobs are can be comf- you know, not like the caseloads are easy or anything like that, right? It's like people are overworked and underpaid, but it's better than a lot of other jobs out there, right? And then you've got the health ins- health insurance is a real problem. Um, so it, it's it's like it, it's like almost like these like bribes, you know, to keep you doing um that to keep you doing that work i I know i felt like that uh like in higher ed you know um it was like very hard to leave even though it was like a horrible situation it was like very hard because of the same things you're talking about like salary health insurance like all those things especially when you have a family right it's like it really gets you like locked you know locked in um I want to talk a little bit about like the outcomes of the work you do with, you know, with stop operation CPS. What are some of like your success stories? Yeah. So um, since we launched in 2021, uh, we had 19 children come home to their families. Um, And so one of like our first uh, like families that we worked with um, was Zephaniah Brown. Um, Miss Sellers was a mom in Kentucky. Um, who went to give birth. And at two days old, Zephaniah was ripped out of her, her hands at a hospital because they said that uh, Miss Sellers was impolite after giving birth. And, you know, yeah, impolite after giving birth. And so that really, uh, again, that was the first kid, first family we worked with. And like that really challenged my beliefs. But for 590 days and like so many, I mean, trips to Kentucky, uh, you know, court cases, petitions, attorney after attorney, 590 days, Zephaniah is now home, um, you know, with his mother safely. Um, But again, we had to fight for that. You know, we had to to fight hard to be able to to show people what was happening. I mean, I went to jail in Kentucky um, in regards to to this case. Um, Also, I mean, we had the Brooks the Brooks twins in um, Ohio, those, the babies were medically kidnapped. Um, and even though a judge found that they had not been abused nor neglected, um, CPS said, no, we're not giving the babies back. And they stayed in custody for months. Um, we had to, again, go to Ohio, went to council, city council meetings, county commissioner meetings, put protests down Main Street. Um, those babies are home. They actually came home like last. So they came home, uh, the Black Mothers March that we had last year, the Friday we were leaving, we got the call that they were, you know, on the way home. And so like, 
for us, reunification is what we fight for. We, we want freedom for, for our children. You know, that is what success looks like for Operation Stop CPS is to see children physically coming back to their communities and to their families. Um, also closing doors to CPS. So we've worked with several families who, because of like advocacy, like CPS has either not seen their children, like and closed the case without seeing the, seeing the children or never come inside the house and close the case. And so that is, again, we want to uh, like, draw the line and push CPS back from our, from our communities. In those two cases, you mentioned the reunifications, like, was there a specific, I mean, 540 days, I think you said 590 days, 590 days. I mean, that is an incredibly long time for a child to not be with their mom or with their family. Um, Was there Like, is there something like that finally kind of like did it in the end to like make them like, what was as much as you, you know, I know there might be some things you can't get into, but like, do you, is there kind of like, is every case different or is there something that usually shifts at a certain point and that's what does it some legal action or something? Yes. Every case is different. Um, But I will say persistence is what pushes for change right and it's like you have to who are the players in the case putting pressure on those people and getting like the community to continue to hold this system accountable like we're watching we're not gonna go away like you know what I mean so it's just it's yeah it's just persistence it's persistence and continuing to push and demand for that child to come home and how do you like how do you get supported like do you like, do you raise funds through donations? Like, how do you do this? Because you're talking about going to Kentucky, going to Ohio. I mean, you're going wherever you need to go. Like, how does how does all that work? Yes, definitely. We we call on the community to invest in our work, right? You can go to our website and click invest in the top right uh, hand corner. Um, operate www.operationstopcps.com because again, that this this is community work. Right. And instead of waiting for the state to uh, invest in their own demise, which I am not waiting for. <laughs> right, right. I, It's calling on, you know, the community to say this is a solution that we need to make sure. Right. It's CPS insurance. It's insurance to say that, like, we are going to fight. We're going to fight for, for families to come home. Um, and also the, the Sailor Responding Power Guide, right? You know, so proceeds from that also go into to the work to make sure that, you know, we're able to continue to support families as well. It's really amazing the, the work you're doing. I know we were, you know, you and I earlier had talked about like going through some of the demands. I, I think, you know, just maybe for the sake of time, like we can refer people to the website or do you want to try to get into some of the demands? What do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, I think we kind of touched on them in regards to repealing ASFA, <laughs> repealing CAPTA, um, and then just the ban, like the, we just have to call it what it is in the ban of the, the sale of black children through the family regulation system. You know, that's our major demands. Yeah. So for people following the podcast, we're going to put, links to the Operation Stop CPS website, um, in the show notes, on the website, on our website, doingthework.com. And you can link there, you know, click the link there and go read up more on the demands and the work Operation Stop CPS are doing. You talked a little bit about 
how folks can donate? Do you also have like volunteer opportunities or other ways folks can get involved? Yes. If you also go to our website, you can click on join the movement and then, you know, just fill out the join the movement um, form and just let us know what your talents are, what you want to do, you know, what your just your natural skills are so that, you know, we go to that list when we're in need of, you know, something. Um, we'll go and see like what we have there to be able to call on volunteers. Also, you know, when it comes to like our newsletter um, and being able to alert people when there's like a court watching opportunity um, or like a call to action. So just ensuring that you're signed up to receive our email list um, on our email list as well. Yeah, because you're 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 covering the whole country, right? You're going all over the U.S. So you need people everywhere who can show up to things. Right. So originally when we launched in 2021, we were all over. <laughs> we were definitely all over. Um, but now we are primarily focused on North Carolina um, and specifically Durham, North Carolina, because we see that we could be more effective by, you know, really targeting this this local area so that we can then replicate in other places. That makes sense. That makes sense. Because there's the need is everywhere. I mean, the need mm-hmm. is just everywhere. Um. This is, it's been amazing talking with you. I think the work you're doing is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, It's so needed. And I mean, these, you know, people can go to your Instagram because I know there's like real like video footage of families like talking about what's happened to them. You know, it's really intense. Like it's, it's like really intense. Like it's one thing to, for us to talk on a podcast about it, right? Because it just, part of me feels like it doesn't even do justice to like the emotional and psychological and spiritual like impact of what is happening to these children and families, you know? And like, I just want to acknowledge that, that like what you're doing is just incredible, you know, really. Um, It's as a parent, you know, it's like absolutely heartbreaking and infuriating to see, you know, this happen to children, you know, and families. And I, and think about, uh, what that would ever, you know, that would ever be like, you know, that type of mm-hmm. having, a, having like the state involved in your life where like, no matter what you do, you just can't escape, you know, from their, from their grasp, you know, and their, what they're in their and them breaking up your family. Yeah. And I, I mean, and that's what we want, right? We want people that might not be impacted that have, might have never even thought that this could happen to feel Right. To feel that. What could that feel like? And then also being able to help people that not have not been impacted understand how big of a threat, though, this system is because it's for profit and it is profiting very well. And then what happens when all of the targeted children are in custody? Who are they going to come for next? Right. And so, like, we have to understand that. And like, then what are we going to do? What are we going to do about it? Yeah. Yeah. So before we wrap up, is there anything, you know, you want to make sure we cover anything else that we should cover? Um, only The only other thing is that, you know, I just want to let people know that on um, April 25th of 2023, uh, the state of North Carolina intensified their retaliation efforts against myself and, you know, our organizing efforts here in, in North Carolina um, and sent, you know, armed agents to, you know, my home um, and surrounded my home for hours and terrorized my family um, and and 
you know, unbeknownst to me, apparently I had been indicted um, for something, you know, they say I did two years ago, but it was in retaliation for using my voice at a county commissioner's meeting the month prior. So all of a sudden now this has happened. And, you know, so of course, like this, we're in the middle of a, you know, a legal battle right now. So it's not a lot that I can say, but what I'm, I want people to understand and to, to put this out because this is just history repeating itself, right? And so like, we can't allow this system to attack in silence, right? We can't allow them to just attack in silence. And so like, if we don't protect like those on the front lines, then we then then where are we going right so what are we able to do and so like again the reason why they attacked is because the stories of these families are very powerful like the truth is extremely powerful to the state and and especially when we're able to say the message extremely clearly the state is kidnapping black children it is a state sponsors the state sponsored kidnapping of black children period it is for profit and like, we're not going to be toned down. We're not going to say anything different because that would just be genocide. And if we're going to continue to be the problem, then again, how are we truly doing the work? Right. And so, um, again, they can, they, I don't want them to continue to attack me. I want to put that out. Right. <laughs> and, but we're going to continue to, to build support. Um, to make sure that we have some protection. And so again, that join the movement, um, link, if you are an attorney, if you, you know, anything that you could do to, to be able to protect this movement, we are calling on people to mobilize, right? Like lawyers, doctors, teachers, we need your mind outside of this system and inside of this movement. And so we are calling on you to mobilize because the fact that they feel the need to attack should let us know that we are on the right track. And so we should not retreat. We need to keep moving forward. Yeah, I hope, you know, by the time people hear the, this episode, you know, hopefully the situation is resolved and um, you're okay. And, um, you know, and we can, you know, I'll try to update we'll be in touch. And I'll, by then, by the time we post, maybe there's some sort of update that you've got through Instagram or through your website or something like that. But yeah, this is what you're, you're exactly right. This is what happens historically, especially when, when anyone organizes, but especially when black people have organized mm -hmm. and we see this happening, not just with what's happening to you, but what's happening, you know, in terms of like, even like African-American studies and like DEI war. I mean, it's like, it's like <laughs> happening everywhere. Um, these, these white racist backlash attacks, you know, um, mm -hmm. I want to thank you again, Amanda, for coming on the podcast and just thank you so much for doing the work. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to doing the work frontline stories of social change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow on Twitter and leave positive reviews on iTunes. If you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work, please get in touch. And thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place.